modern dating. Recently had a, an opportunity to get to know a young lady, and by young, I mean, you know, under 80. You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage. Real letters they've written or received, correspondence back and forth, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we only wish we could write and send. And find some common ground. You wouldn't let me sleep until your G-spot was found. Lisa Malone shares letters she was required to write to her parents when she traveled to London as a young adult. And while they are lacking exuberance, we found them pretty entertaining. So um, when I was in high school, quite a while ago, uh, 1982, my parents sent my sister, my younger sister Jessica and I, to London on a theater trip because we were very enthusiastic about theater. And uh, the one condition that they sent us on was that we, um, or I, every night send them a little postcard or a letter detailing what we did. My mom saved them. And she recently gave them back to me, and I am shocked at how boring they are. <laughs> I can't believe how caught up in the minutia I was of the moment. I spent great detail writing about how long it took us to get to Stonehenge, but I completely shined on the idea of the magic and the beauty of seeing cats for the first time and how tears were streaming down my cheeks when I watched Grizabella <laughs> ascend to the heaviside layer. Looking at these now, I kind of think that I owe her a rewrite <laughs> of these letters might get around to it someday. Please imagine that each of these start with Dear Mom and Dad. Six fourteen eighty two. Well, it's around 11.37 Phoenix time right now, and we're about an hour and a half out of London right now. We had an approximate three-hour layover in Chicago. <laughs> the Windy City. I've come to the conclusion that Chicago is not your major swinging city. Jessica, Linda, Susie, and I looked around for something to do, and luckily, we found the moving sidewalks. We've been on the plane for quite some time now. We just finished seeing the movie Rich and Famous. Between that, playing backgammon, scrabble, reading, conversing, and trying to move around in the itty-bitty bathroom, time has passed very quickly. More after we land. 61582. Today was exciting, interesting, and tiring. We got off the plane at 7.47 at Heathrow Airport. We were then shuttled immediately to the hotel, the Inverness Court. It is very old and very beautiful, antique-wise. It is so hard for me to realize that I'm in a foreign country. Jessica and I went to the room and unpacked immediately. We had made plans earlier to go to Harrods. On the way to meet Susie and Linda, Jessica and I got into an old-fashioned lift elevator <laughs> that had a mind of its own. We passed their floor and went straight to the top. Then we went all the way down again, but we just couldn't make it let us out. Finally, we got things sorted out. <laughs> then we hailed a taxi. Actually, Jessica hailed a taxi. Then off to Harrods to find some cheap souvenirs. Pretty soon we were exhausted. We climbed into another taxi and returned to a little restaurant near the hotel. 
6.16.82. Up bright and early at 7 a.m. and off to breakfast. Then we took a coach, bus, tour of the city. (laughs) At around noon, a group of us decided to go shopping. We walked all around and visited the Reject China shop. Then we went out on the double-deck buses and the tubes. Surprisingly enough, the tube is less expensive than a taxi. We tried to visit Westminster Abbey, but when we got there, they were holding a service so we could not go on the tour. We got back to the hotel. We left immediately to see the musical Cats. It was absolutely fantastic. 6-17-82. This morning at 8.30, we left for Stratford-on-Avon on our coach. It was a three-hour trip. When we arrived, we saw where Shakespeare's wife lived. Then to the Shakespeare Theater to see Much Ado About Nothing. It was absolutely fantastic. (laughs) After that, we visited where Willie was raised. It was a very neato house. Then back to the bus. Straight home, another three-hour trip. Everyone fell asleep. Dinner was up to us, so Susie and I took the tube to Bond Street to visit a four-story record store. We wanted to buy the album from Cats. It was closed, but our time was not wasted. As we were looking for a pub to buy some dinner, we noticed a whole lot of people at the end of the block. There was a Bobby, policeman, every two feet. Susie asked what was going on. We soon learned that there was going to be a demonstration of the PLO. There were a whole bunch of people yelling, Reagan, Begin, CIA, how many people did you kill today? It was very interesting. Then we grabbed some food and took the tube home. 6.18, this morning, it was up early and off to Westminster Abbey. After Westminster, we split from that group and met another group at London Tower. Or the Tower of London. (laughs) Jessica and I hung around with two girls from Cortez, Lori and Paula, and we visited the White Tower and the Crown Jewels and the prison of Sir Walter Raleigh, or however you spell it, and other museums and torture places. Then off to another theater to see Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap, then back to the hotel. 6-19-82. This morning we got up early to take a train to Brighton from Victoria Station. When we arrived, we walked over to the Royal Palace. It was almost a replica of the Taj Mahal, or whatever. (laughs) Then we ate at a pub called The Golden Fleece. I tried a pork pie and a Danish blue. I like the sandwich much better than the pie. After dinner, we, well, I went to see Don Quixote at the National Theater. It was a very impressive set. <laughs> 6 20, 82, Sunday. At 9 a.m., we took the tube to visit Petticoat Lane. I was amazed at how huge it was and all the crap they were selling. For lunch, I had mince meat and onion pie. Wow. <laughs> After that, we went to Hyde Park, and did we run into some weirdos? <laughs> it was really very interesting. 62182. Well, today may be the historical day that the new Prince of Wales is born. Lady Di is in the hospital right now. Big wow. <laughs> Jessica and I went to the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Bad news though. The workers on the tube are on strike. We had to take a bus, and that was very hard to do. <laughs> well, word has it that the new Prince of Wales has arrived. Congratulations. Just got back from the theater where we saw no sex, please, we're British. It was funny. 62282. Rain, rain, go away. It is absolutely pouring. 
Today, a group of us went to the Natural Science Museum because the tubes are shut down. We had to walk all the way across Hyde Park. It was a very interesting museum. We thought that we would be able to flag a taxi cab home, but no such luck. We ended up walking all the way to the hotel in the rain. Oh, well. Then off to see The Sound of Music starring Petula Clark. We were supposed to see Barnum, but that was shut down. To be truthful, I really didn't want to see it. But it was great. The sets were fantastic. It was an enjoyable show. 6.23.82. Long bus trip today. We went to visit Stonehenge. First of all, it was very pretty and amazing. But some of its beauty was marred by the fence of barbed wire they had put around it. Off to Longleat to visit the palace, then off to Bath. I was a little disappointed with Bath because they had built over it an entire museum and it was surrounded by shopping centers. At least Stonehenge was isolated, but Bath is way too commercialized. 6.24.82, last day in London. Still no tube service. Jessica and I decided to do a little shopping today. It was raining, but we walked to Oxford Circus anyway. There was an old pub called, I believe, the lame or the cold duck. I don't know. We ate something called spotted dick. <laughs> After shopping, we caught a taxi back to the hotel. A miracle. After that, we went to Hyde Park with Robbie and Reggie and rented a rowboat and rode around the lake. For dinner, we went to the beef eater. That's medieval or whatever. All the waiters and waitresses were dressed up and we had to eat all our food with our fingers. 625.82. Well, I'm on the airplane heading for home. This trip has been great. I've had a lot of fun, learned a lot, and met some neat people. I'd say that this was a very worthwhile investment. <laughs> Thank you. Will Seymour shares a letter that has been in his family for over 140 years. Uh, so I brought a letter written to my great-great-grandmother, Harriet Warren. It was written in the winter of 1875, and Harriet is 19 years old. And her brother is writing to her from his farm in Kansas, explaining why he's been estranged from the father. And uh, he was a soldier in the Civil War and wrote her many, many letters and he worked the family farm for many years, and then suddenly he moved to Kansas. And Harriet uh, is returned from a sanitarium where she was treated for tuberculosis, and she's at home in DeSoto, Wisconsin, right along the Mississippi River. William H. H. Bates, Phillips County, Kansas, February 8th, 1875. Dear Sis Harriet, we are well, as usual. Wish you all the same blessing. Was glad to hear from you and Clara and hoping next time to hear from Frederick, John, and Helen all. Please put in a word. Philip is learning to write and read, and Henry can say his ABCs. Both of them can ride a horse well. We've had a hard winter so far. We've had three wild snow and cold and windstorms. I was 15 miles from home and had to lay over one day. You could not see 10 yards on this prairie. I suppose you've read some big grasshopper stories. Believe me, all I've seen printed does not exaggerate fact. Well, Harriet, you wish you say that father and I were more easy on each other. Living or dying, my conscience tells me I tried to do the fair thing and done more with father when I took the farm last fall. Every last one of relatives commenced, as soon as I moved on to it, to poison his mind against us. 
You know that when I went to Minnesota in 1862, I was disappointed by Father. I had then expected he would send me money because of the years working his farm. When I returned, after five weeks' travel, I told him to crop me out of his will and not getting anything from him. I volunteered as a soldier in the fall of 62, as you know, then taken prisoner, and I told him I was young enough to take care of myself. Well, to cap the climax, they all set up to poison pap and ma'am against us by telling a second childhood. How I was going for back debts and swallow all his effects even before he was cold, and succeeded in making him believe it even after I gave him a final settlement receipt. Well, it's all settled now, and I never wish resurrection. So I fixed it anyway to suit Pap, and I got out of there lively before they were fairly awake. Well, Harriet, I never brood over bygones, for I found they only grow brighter. I always had a plenty of friends, yet wherever I was, and friends not like my relatives back there, it so happened back there that relatives always were secretly envious to us from the fact that I prospered better than any of them as generally tend to my own business. And again, society that sought our house did not seek theirs. Our relatives took notice of our respectful deference. We were able to live down eavesdropping by taking no notice of it, but remembering vinegar works clear. There is a clap of persons in this world that you should talk according to scripture. Yeah, yeah. And no, no. And good morning, or how do, is as much as you ought to say. Well, Harriet, for the seven years I lived there in Vernon, I never failed to have crops on Father's land. I have 40 acres to produce this year, corn, so let the wide world wag as it will, I'll be gay and happy Bill. I was sick enough to be abed the whole month, pleurisy pains. Can't do hard work yet. I hope to do better here. No churches or schoolhouses less than 20 miles from here. Burn this or keep it in a safe place. Please keep us posted in general. I would like to see Fred and be able to give him a recommendation in Milwaukee. I used to think he'd make a lawyer. I hope I shall be able to come around some of those years. Yours truly, William H. H. Bates. Jill Demby Guest reads part two of a letter she originally shared with us in November 2014. You can listen to that podcast by visiting the website readyourletter.com. Dear Ben, I want to talk to you about the night you died, the events in order as I know them to be. Because of your injury, I don't know how cogent you were. And I got the facts from Gina, so it's through her filter which was a very angry filter. But I'm not interested in that. I want you to know what it was like for me that night. And since you're not here, I get the floor to myself. I hate to admit it, but it feels kind of good to know you won't be interrupting me to talk about yourself. You only clammed up on emotional issues. But no matter, you're dead. That's my bit of black humor. So back to me. Here's how it went down Sunday night, August 17th, 2014. Around 7 p.m., Gina called to say you'd had one of your seizures while carrying boxes into her apartment. You'd hit your head, 
had a large contusion and lost about an ounce of blood. Paramedics took you to the ER. Gina stayed behind and called me like she always did. She ranted on about how angry she was with you and how this was the last straw, even though you were just friends. But as always, when you came to, you released yourself against medical advice. She called again to see if I thought she should pick you up. I advised her not to. If you had another seizure in the car, it could endanger her life. Instead, to meet you at home, I told her not to take you back to her place because of your head injury and said, now prophetically, you do not want a death on your hands. But she did take you back to her place and was so angry with you, she left you alone in her mother's vacant apartment in the same complex. You were there for an over an hour, unattended in an unfamiliar place with a substantial head injury. I guess she thought you would sleep it off, but she couldn't anticipate what would happen, that you would somehow stumble out the sliding glass door into the pool and drown. When she found you, it was too late. The coroner estimated you'd been in the pool for about 45 minutes. At 1 a.m., when they took you to the morgue, I got the call. Gina said, I hate to tell you, but Ben's dead. I'll never forgive him for what he did to me. Those were her exact words. I was shocked, but not surprised. In a way, it was the call I'd been waiting for. Leaving your seizures untreated with your continued drinking, you were on your way out. It was just a matter of when. But these were my first thoughts when I got the news. Thank God it wasn't me. I'm free. And thank you for letting me go. Forgive me for not crying hysterically. That came later. But I think you'd be relieved. You never felt worthy of me anyway. And my crying over you days were long gone. Because you were no victim. You consciously chose your path, and I respected you for that. You were the most focused, productive person I knew. I loved you for who you were, even though you were spiraling. I just disassociated, kept my feelings at bay, kept my boundaries, kept myself protected. If my heart was no longer yours, somehow I could survive you. It was the only way we could be friends and lovers. But my therapist had warned me this Bonnie and Clyde adventure is not going to end well. And she was right. It could have been me that found you in that pool. And I thank God every day you spared me that. Still, this whole letting go thing is a lot more daunting than I imagined. It's a process to process a death, especially when someone is lodged in your heart, in every cell of your body. But the more you can let me go, the more I can let you go. Can we make a deal here? Recently, I've had dreams about you like I still have some PTSD. I thought the early scars had healed. I thought I'd escaped. In one dream, I'm at your apartment. On the coffee table are the remnants of a meal. On two plates lay a heart-shaped raspberry tart divided in half, one half of the heart on each plate. I got the picture, a romantic meal with someone else. An electric current seized my body, and it was at that moment I realized I hadn't escaped you. I still mourned the loss of someone I could never have. So why these dreams now? You're dead, but somehow still alive. I see you in my dreams. I dream you when I'm awake. I see your face on my pillow, feel your back up against me when I sleep. 
your hand on my thigh. So maybe it's true that people never really die. After you passed, I went on a silent retreat, another place you would have definitely been kicked out of. The spiritual director I poured my heart out to told me it was clear you hadn't been well and that God had taken you to a better place. She believed you were my angel now and to ask you for guidance. So what do you think? Do people ever really die? Is it true for you? If you hear me, please send me a sign. Show me a rainbow. I'm waiting for your answer. Chris Sheets and Grant Pachoco improvise letters back and forth based on the audience suggestion of the experience of attending camp. Thank you, audience, for this suggestion that resulted in a brilliant piece of improv. We are so glad this was recorded. Dear Grant, boy, oh boy, what a time we had, didn't we? At old, good old Lake Chokawa <laughs> summer camp for delinquent boys. <laughs> All the life lessons we've learned and the counselors we tortured. I hope that you make it at home all right with that broken arm. Sorry. Your pal, Chris. Dear Chris, I hated absolutely everything about the summer camp. From the moment we got off the bus and they unshackled us, <laughs> till the moment I was sent home because you shoved me off the top of the cabin. Please do not write to me again. Grant. Dear Grant's mom, If you could read this to Grant, your son, I'd appreciate it. Truth is, a dare is a dare in truth or dare. And I would have been happy with the truth about you and June Louise, the camp nurse, but you chose to dare. Well, when we got to the roof of the cabin and you failed to follow through by jumping off, I decided to help you out, as any good friend would. Sorry about the arm and sorry about your uh, foul temper, but you have to admit, we did have a great time out on the lake. Don't you remember? Thanks, Grant's mom. Your son's friend, Chris. Dear Chris, imagine my surprise this morning when my mom came into my room talking like you. <laughs> Disoriented, I quickly figured out what was going on. I'll have you know I had no fun at all at the camp, not even with the nurse, though Lord knows I tried. And thanks for bringing up the lake. You know I don't like leeches. I told you that before we went out there. 
And you surprised me with a whole bucket of them all over my head in the middle of the lake. Please do not write to me or my mother ever again. Not your friend, Grant. Dear Grant's grandpa, I know you won't see Grant until Thanksgiving, but this can wait. When, when you see Grant, please give him a warm kiss and a hug and say it's for me, his pal Chris. Let him know also, wait, I'll just talk to Grant through you. Grant, about those leeches, boy, you should have seen your face when they went down your pants. And you had to go to the nurse in that embarrassing situation. Boy, we back at the cabin couldn't stop laughing. Our, our, our sides hurt from all the laughter. I read it in a I read about the leeches in a medieval comic book. <laughs> anyway, after you stole the car and went into town and and, and uh, hijacked <laughs> that school bus filled with children. I thought I would never see you again, but lo and behold, they brought you back to camp. I don't know why I'm bringing this up now, <laughs> other than to say that it was one of the bright spots in my camp experience. Hey, Grant, could you send me back the $5 I let you borrow? Your pal, Chris. Dear Chris, Merry Christmas. Imagine my surprise at Thanksgiving dinner when Grandpa Jim came, sat down next to me, hugged me, and said it was from you. I about punched him in the face, but then quickly realized that would send me back to the camp for delinquent boys. In close, please find your five dollars. Also, you talk about the bright spot. I think I do have one bright spot, and that was that late night when you were in the bunk above me and you sang me that song. Could you write me out the lyrics to that song that you completely made up? It will make me feel so much better. I love the way it rhymed. It would be the only Christmas gift I need. Yours, Grant. Dear Grant, I appreciate you taking my letters once again without any kind of proxy. In clothes, you'll find a tape. I sang the song for you and put it on that tape. You can play it in your tape recorder.
I even enclosed the lyrics. You can sing along. <laughs> Your pal, Chris. The camp for delinquent boys. We're having some fun. Ooh. We're just swimming and torturing the nurse in the sun. In the sun. We're at the camp for delinquent boys. Camp for delinquent boys. Everybody's having fun. Everybody's having fun. We have the from across the lake on the run because we are delinquents. We don't listen to rules. No rules. This is a tough life. You gotta live it. And we delinquent boys are no fools. So come to the camp. You'll have a wonderful time. If you don't get a tick bite and come down with a disease of Lyme. Sandy Adamitis shares correspondence between herself and a cold case detective that gave us an alternate story about grace and compassion. I never thought that I would be part of a murder investigation. But when my best friend Janet was murdered, I didn't have a choice. It was overwhelming and unbearable, and my world pretty much fell apart. I pretty much shut down, and I would really talk about Janet. Um, but during times like anniversaries, her birthday, her death, and her favorite holiday, Flag Day, um, emotions would build and I would drink wine and I would cry. Years went by and Janet's case went unsolved. Then out of the blue, I was contacted by a cold case detective. Her case had landed on his desk and he came by my work and we talked about Janet for a really long time. I fell back into my pattern of drinking and crying, and one night I wrote a letter to the detective. Dear Detective Ramos, this Wednesday is the 10-year anniversary of Janet's murder. Her name comes up quite often these days, and kind-hearted friends, when they speak of her, say, when Janet died. I don't know why, but it's like a dagger in my heart and soul to hear it stated that way like she fell sick and did not have a baby inside of her when she was murdered. I don't know why at this moment in time I felt compelled to reach out to you tonight like we are friends. I know we are not. It hurts deep inside when they speak of her death in a simplistic way. Perhaps I'm writing to you out of nothing but sadness and hope because you are the only person I know who can actually do something about what happened. Please forgive the ramblings of a silly woman, but knowing you are out there on her behalf is sometimes my only solace. Thank you. It means everything to me that you are there, Sandy. The detective wrote back. Dear Sandy, 
Thank you for sharing with me your thoughts and feelings about Janet. I feel privileged. Although we are not what some would call friends, you can count on me to listen and offer whatever comfort I can. After reading how friends mention Janet's death, I realize that sometimes we tend to use softer words rather than bring back memories that can cause pain and sadness to someone. I'm not an expert on how people think and can only tell you what I've seen in the past dealing with family and friends of murder victims. We use words like die instead of killed because we don't want to bring back dreadful memories of a situation. We try to refer to a situation with as kind words as possible. Believe it or not, as detectives, we are taught to use words just like your friends did just for those reasons. Janet's death has been on my mind every day since I learned about it years ago. As a homicide detective, I carry many cases, and none of them are as more important to me than Janet's. I wish I can share more about the case so you can see the number of people involved in trying to give Janet justice and her family and friends answers. I believe every time we think about her, it's a sign that she's looking down and giving us thanks for not forgetting and caring about her so much. Although I never met her, I know she was a good person just by talking to her close friends. Janet fell into a bad situation, not of her design. She did not see it coming. Sandy, I wish I could say more or do more to make the pain go away. Now I ask forgiveness for rambling. Count on me to be there when you need a friend or just someone to talk to. I just wish I could do more to help you through these tough times. Stay strong for me, Don. Janet's case has never been solved, but after reading Detective Ramos's letter, I never felt the need to use alcohol to cry about Janet. I never thought I would be friends with a cold case detective, but he was the friend that I needed that night, and I will be forever grateful to him. Thank you. Jonathan Menchin, who is also the remarkable musician on this episode, reads a letter to an old friend about music, tenacity, and never giving up. Dear Mr. Jones, you fry it in butter on both sides. You use mayonnaise inside on the cheese for maximum goo. Yes, I remember your slow process for making a grilled cheese sandwich. I use it. Thank you for introducing this trailer park recipe into my life. Now you live on disability, compliments of the state of Rhode Island, and call me drunk once a week to review your dissolution and desolation, and you asked me to participate in it. I guess we could have been very rich and famous by now if you had come through. I do blame you for that. Yes, we could have been having so much fun. You, the most handsome man in New England, who played guitar and wrote songs and sang them. Songs people wanted to hear, not like the 999 out of 1,000 songs we usually hear. You had the one out of 1,000 song, the one out of 10,000 song. You were a one in 10,000 guy, a one in a 100,000 guy, as if the fates did not give you enough already. They gave you a voice that no one could ignore. The tone, oh man, what tone? 
what character, what pain, what laughter, what a person there was in your voice that everyone who heard wanted to hear again. That guy, Ed, the guy who produced American Pie, he wanted to make you a star. Why didn't you want to be a star? Too difficult? At which part? Having people love you? Having women want you? The money? It must have been the fun you thought you didn't deserve. Why should you have all the fun when so many are in pain? I mean, what was it? As if any of this is important now, but all, all you had to do was show up and sing your songs and let people project onto you some hero thing. You jackass. You not only didn't make yourself wealthy and famous and not having fun, you cheated me. I was willing to follow you to the fun. I kept coming back after you'd already demonstrated your paralysis, thinking, this guy has got to get it together. How can anybody this talented, this attractive, this compelling with that magic thing we all want, that thing that music can do at its highest, most transporting level, how can he not get the prize? The gods gave you the ultimate gift, the rare ability to craft songs that people believe, and you pissed it away in self-pity and guilt or whatever you want to call it. I was there and waiting for you to take us on a magic carpet into fun and fame. How could you pass up a chance to miss the fun and the music? What music we would have made in front of thousands of people. There is no higher realm, no more exalted place for humans. And you thought what you deserve was to live in a rooming house with a bathroom down the hall and to be the guy who could have been, could have been. What a sad and old story you told with your life. And I forgive you for not making me famous. I guess I do. It's not your responsibility to make me famous. I understood why you drink and are quaking in psychic pain most of the time. You must know what you could have been. I forgive you, but really, god damn. A boy sees his father puffing himself up into an image way beyond his modest talents and small accomplishments with his mother as an accomplice in the father's campaign of self-promotion. All the father's energy goes towards protecting his self-image like an ostrich with its head in the sand instead of making an effort to really become the great man he wants to be. The boy fears that all the praise for his own work was, is, falsely earned, has learned many of the self-deluding techniques himself, and he suspects that his talent is a charade like his father's. Now he is desperate to prove he is not a fraud. It is this desperation to excel, the impossible standards he places on himself, and the struggle to maintain objectivity, which has slowed down his progress to a near standstill. The seesaw between grandiosity and feelings of mediocrity. He can never escape the feeling that he is a fake. And he loves his father, too. That boy is me. So, yeah, I get it. Success is impossibly hard. Failing is quick and is comfortable. When we were recording in that studio in Chelsea with Bob Dylan's bass player, I choked. You kept telling me you blamed me for letting Ed fire me. He should have fired me. I was not able to deliver. I couldn't get it out of my head that Bob Dylan's bass player was there. I was intimidated. I thought, as my father taught me, that there are special people who do special things and were given special talents, and I'm not sure that you're one of them. I froze at the idea that I was playing with somebody who had just played with Bob Dylan. Since then, I've played the piano with Daniel Barenboim sitting behind me eating a steak. I've played the organ with Dave Mason, who played with Stevie Winwood. 
sitting across from me. I've led bands with musicians who played with Keith Richards and thought, yeah, so what? I'm as good as any of you. You can't get in my head. This is what I do, and I've been doing it my whole life. Nobody else can do it like me. But back then in Chelsea, uh, that Bob Dylan asshole, I, I couldn't do it. Do not discount envy and the difficulty of being envied. Success invites envy, even hate. It's awkward to be successful. You must feel you deserve it. Some state of grace for the special few. And who deserves it? About your method of soft boiling an egg in the shell. I use it. <laughs> Is this also some kind of white trash trailer park trick? I'll admit, it takes some skill to remove the egg without fragments of shell, too. The trick is to use the right shaped spoon. Everyone seems to embrace their inner white trash trailer park when they move to Los Angeles. So I fit right in with that egg trick. But look here, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Jones, John Paul, JP. Your parents gave you that name? Huh. You should have changed your name so you would feel less like a myth and more like a man. I'm sorry for the cruel caricatures we draw of ourselves and our friends, but life is good for mention. Oh yeah, music, whole lot of love. Still got a few moves left. I wish you were here and we could play music again and have fun, but you're not that guy anymore. I can't alleviate anyone's pain by not flying too high. Who can? You told me once that I should be what I am, do what I do, and be a failure at it if necessary. No, I won't fail. I'll be what I am and do what I am, and I won't fail. Your favorite piano player, Jonathan. My name is Jane Entwistle, a producer on To Whom It May Concern, and I read a letter to the costumed mascots of the world. Dear mascots of America, <laughs> seems a day doesn't go by lately without some viral video popping up on Facebook of you guys breakdancing in the frozen aisle of a grocery store or entertaining the masses in a unique and unusual way at a sporting event. The costumed mascot has been part of our culture for decades. Mickey and Minnie doling out love at the happiest place on earth. I recently worked with the most famous television mascot of them all, the Kool-Aid Jug. <laughs> I assumed, as I'm sure we all would, that in these digital days, the Kool-Aid Jug would be CGI'd crashing through a wall, hollering, oh yeah. <laughs> but I assure you, it was a real giant jug, and he really crashed through the wall. I'm glad to see costumed mascots making the rounds in our viral world. Done on a sidewalk or on a street corner, it can be a thankless, anonymous job. On Earth Day, I saw the mascot for appliance recycling. <laughs> a janky foam refrigerator dancing around to get attention. Not cool hip-hop dancing, more of an unstable swaying. And I felt the urge to give the refrigerator a hug. I found being a costumed mascot terrifying. I was disconnected from the world around me, unable to communicate except to flail my arms and point, and given that the head would swivel facing the opposite direction as my own head, 
I was left in darkness, usually pointing at nothing. As with the beginning of every strange story I tell, this one is no different and starts out like the rest. So I answered an ad on Craigslist. Actor needed to be a costumed bee at a convention. I thought this was the perfect job for me. Bees are little and so am I at just five feet tall. I answered the ad and with a short telephone interview booked the job. The pay was decent for two full days at the convention center in downtown Los Angeles. The convention was for lawyers, with the majority of the vendors advertising products lawyers use. The company I was hired by had a webinar service out of the South, and the representatives flew in for the conference. Apparently, the B-head caused quite a buzz as it wouldn't fit in the overhead compartment on the plane. When I arrived at their convention booth, I saw alarm flicker across their faces. Oh dear, our regular mascot actor is six feet tall, but this is the only costume we have. <laughs> Thankfully, the bee's legs and arms could be rolled up so they didn't drag on the floor. But as soon as I put the large bee head on, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> As I walked, it bobbled from side to side and slowly began to swivel so that as I faced forward, the bee's face, and more importantly, the bee's eyes, faced to the side. Luckily, I wasn't required to dance or fly about. I simply had to stand and hand out the candy, bit oh honey. I'd like you to envision what a convention for lawyers and their accoutrements might look like. Lots of gray and brown suits, studious types promoting the benefits of heavy-duty document shredders, services for online meeting forums, and one bright yellow bee with an oversized head walking into walls, <laughs> knocking over chairs and standing facing forward while the head was facing the wall behind it. <laughs> it didn't take long for a line to form with people wanting to take photos with the bee, hug the bee, receive sweets from the bee, and every so often the kind mum who gingerly turned the bee's head to face the right way. Children and who could blame them, would see the bee and start yelling from three aisles over, the bee, the bee, I want to see the bee. The few times that I could actually see out of the eye holes, I noticed a group of young men in suits gathered at a booth two rows down. They were whispering and staring hard at the bee. They looked angry as people swarmed around the bee while their booth remained empty. They were giving away little Nerf footballs as swag. They slowly advanced toward me, tossing the Nerf ball menacingly into the air. Hey, B! You want to play catch? I shook my head nervously, which caused the bee head to swivel slightly so I could barely see out of the eyes. They tossed the ball at me, and like a cartoon, I swung my arms, missing the ball entirely as it pegged me in the head. They laughed derisively and tossed the ball again, aiming for my body. 
Their jealous glee intensified, and I actually panicked that these lawyer boys were going to take me down. Suddenly, I heard the shouts of angry onlookers. Hey, don't hurt that bee! <laughs> a chorus of voices came to my defense, and someone hugged me protectively. I hung my big head in defeat, feeling like that clumsy girl who was never picked in gym class. The rest of the convention passed without incident, and I did feel happy that I could be a little burst of yellow happiness in what was probably the most fucking boring convention on the planet. <laughs> this letter serves as an ode to those tenacious souls who brave the costume to promote, educate, and yes, even love the masses. Well done, you. Love, Jane. AKA the B. There are people who need our help. We must give each according to the size of his plate. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. As I said, the musician for this episode was Jonathan Menchin. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. And if you have a letter you'd like to submit, even if you live far away, we'll read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. They must play polo and dress themselves for cricket. All we need is a yo-yo and some lottery tickets. They must live in houses big enough for Godzilla. All we need is a rowboat and a cooler filled with Miller. Say-